You're listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. This is Ian here as always. Anthony Petrielli is with me again as always. We don't have a guest with us this week. I'm frustrated. I'm very frustrated with some of the Leafs' decisions of late. The most recent being not the trade for Jared McCann, which I thought was an excellent trade. Leaving him unprotected is something that really riled up Leafs Nation on Twitter, and I think justifiably so. And we're going to spend a large portion of the, let's say, first 30 minutes of this podcast discussing that decision and some of the factors that go into that decision. I, I think it's something really interesting that a lot of Leafs fans are debating heavily right now. Anthony, where do you fall on this spectrum? Because I know it's a big topic right now in Leafs Nation. A week from now, a lot of people will have forgotten it, but I think this is an important moment of the offseason for us to be getting into this discussion. So I'm not nearly as upset about this as many others seem to be. The only thing that gives me pause on this, the only thing, is that from all indications previously, and this could still happen, but Seattle, according to essentially every person I've read, was going to claim Alex Kerfoot, and maybe they still will. But the way that I look at it is, that was a gift. I I am just, I'm stunned at the conversation that, you know, you can't lose Kerfoot. Like, he was bad all season. Like, I can't believe how many people have said to me, like, well, he was good in the playoffs. Like, well, yes, first of all, I watched the playoffs. Shocking, I know, but I actually watched all seven of the games. Every minute, I will not even tell you how many times I rewatched certain things. So we won't even get into that. Yeah, I do it every night, and it's torturous sometimes. Yeah, it's like a fact. Like It's like thrown into your face. Like, hey, did you know Kerfoot was going to the playoffs? No, please tell me more about this this playoff that happened. And let's put it into context. He probably had like three or four games that, that he was good. I'm not going to say seven games of the series. He was unreal night in, night out. But he had a good playoff overall, and that's great. But he was bad in the regular season, like legitimately bad. Like that contract was an anchor so the only thing that i've really fallen on in the trade is i was like they were gonna do it they were gonna take kerfoot off your hands for free and now they might not so here's the thing with kerfoot that i find interesting i'm convinced that a lot of the front offices around the nhl watched him like us mostly in the playoffs and i'm whoa, not whoa, sure whoa. How- not like us i want to say like many people because i watched all regular season i watched all 56 did I watch all 56? I'd have to go back and check to see if I did any work after the games. I'm not sure if I... I won't even say how many minutes my degenerate <laughs> life watched these guys play. I watched a lot of Joe Thornton on PP1 this year, man. I watched a lot of it. Yeah, so uh, like, so not like us. I think a lot of people just watched the playoffs and they went, yeah, this guy's good. And wow, he actually showed up in the playoffs, which is rare on this team. And that's fine. I'm not sure if they watched him the last two seasons fail to be a third line center effectively when he played on the second line at left wing alongside Nylander and Tavares he looked good so did Galchenyuk they got him for a million dollars off the scrap heap a lot of guys can look good in that role and I I don't think it I'm not trying to say that I think Alex Kerfoot's a bad hockey player because you can look at specific things he does and see the fact that he can transition the puck from defense to offense you can see he's a good passer defensively I think he's better than we give him credit for because even though he's undersized He's able to get himself in the right positions and pick off passes. But if you look at the net impact he has when he's on the ice, at 5-on-5 five five this year, if you adjust for context, he had the worst numbers of any Leaf in the regular season when it came to driving play. He got outshot and outchanced. Also, if you simply watched him play, 
<laughs> like that like you don't even need to look anything just well nhl general managers they're high on him they think alex kerfoot is the guy to take from toronto i disagree with that opinion yeah and if they lose mccann to your point i'll be upset and i'll let you tee off on that now okay so let's talk about jared mccann because i can turn this into a positive it's that i think jared mccann's a very good hockey player i think pittsburgh should have held on to him i'm not sure why they were willing to give up on him so quickly and easily what you could say to push back on Jared McCann is that he shot 15% this year and that he's a career 9% shooter. I know that's not going to repeat itself. You know that. I'm not sure if NHL GMs know how shooting percentage works based on some recent... Exi- There's a long track record of NHL GMs not paying attention to shooting percentage. But if you're going to make a case against McCann, I think that's the best one. It's that what he did this past year, probably not super repeatable, went on a bit of a heater. I don't expect him to put the puck in the net that many times. Okay, but he's always been a good transition player. His numbers this year were excellent. If you sort by uh, goals above replacement, a a metric that tries to take everything into account, line mates, context, competition, if you look at per 60 minutes, he led the NHL in in goals above replacement per 60 minutes. Do I think he's the best player in the NHL? No. Do I expect him to lead the NHL in that stat next season? No. No. But the fact that he's that high on the list means that he was doing something right. Should we arguably light that stat on fire if he's second in the league? No, but my point is that he did a lot of things right to get the puck in the right direction of the rink. The pucks ended up going into the net a bit more often than they probably will in the future, but the evidence shows that this guy's a really good hockey player, and NHL GMs are down on him. I think he can play second-line left wing. I think he can play 3C. I think he's much better than Kerfoot, and NHL GMs seem to see that the two as more or less equals, or Kerfoot is the better player, and I fail to see that. I think he has a good shot. I think he like that's that's his game, right? Like he he's a good shooter. He has some size to him. He's six two. He can move the puck around. Kyle Dubas is familiar with him. He had him in the Sioux. Like he's a fine enough player for three million dollars. I think people just have I don't know why there's like a strange like fetish for like 40 point wingers with holes in their game on twitter.com like I just every year there's like these 40 point wingers that people just lose their minds over is this me on Thomas Tatar yes that's definitely another one um but the the bigger thing I'll say is and this is really the crux of the thing so my issue is that if they if the Leafs still have Kerfoot I'm going to be annoyed. Like, I, I just don't want him on the team. Like, I think you need to move him and kind of reshape a little bit of the look and feel of, of the team. Like, I think he's the kind of guy where I look at and just, like, stop having these kinds of players on the team. Like, like improve them. Like, have a guy who's, a you know, a bit more specialized in something. Whereas Kerfoot's just like, yeah, he's pretty good, you know, as a penalty killer. He's pretty good offensively. It's like, just be really good at one thing and let the Leafs optimize that in their lineup instead he's kind of just like this filler who's sort of like average to maybe above average to maybe below average across the board i just like those guys don't do anything for me i look at cup winners and they have guys definitely within their top nine forward group who are all really good at one thing or another and he just to me he doesn't fit that bill for three and a half million dollars is expensive but i think your problem is that they're keeping justin hole over jared mccann so let's clarify that I think my biggest problem is, yeah, is that I thought after the Jared McCann trade, I thought it made the most sense to go seven forwards, three D, one goalie, instead of four forwards and four defensemen, which they've now done, leaving McCann and Kerfoot exposed to protect Justin Hall. So what that tells me 
is that the Leafs see Justin Hall's $2 million contract and ability to play in the top four alongside Jake Muzzin as a more valuable asset than what Jared McCann provides for you. And that's where my disagreement comes in, and I want to do it respectfully because if I just yell expletives like I do over text messages when it was first announced, I don't think it gets me anywhere. I'm not, you know, in the moment, we all have emotional ways of dealing with things. When you watch a hockey game and you scream at the TV, you got to do it. It's the catharsis. It's how you get it out of your system. But now that I'm actually trying to rationally break down why this is my opinion and why I disagree with someone who I really respect in Kyle Dubas, Brendan Shanahan and company, I think Justin Hall is more a product of Jake Muzzin than the Justin Hall part. I think Justin Hall himself is a good puck mover, activates into the play as the fourth guy pretty often and is very good at it when he does it. But if you look at him when he plays without Justin Hall, or sorry, when he plays without Jake Muzzin at the NHL level, the results haven't been there. And that's the case with a lot of guys who play next to Jake Muzzin. Jake Muzzin made Nikita Zaitsev look good. He, any partner he's played with throughout his career, there's a long list and you can look at it when they play with Muzzin versus when they play without Muzzin. The numbers go way up when you play with Muzzin. That's what happens when you play with the top pair of caliber defensemen. I think the quality of line mates factor here is something that is not being taken into account enough. And I also think the fact that Kyle Dubas has been with Justin Hall throughout this entire ride is potentially clouding his judgment. I brought up endowment bias. I tweeted it the other day. And that's where you value your own things more than you value the possessions of others. And this is why when you make trades on the internet, they're all bad because every fan of a team thinks that their players are better than the players that they'll be trading for. When in reality, those other players, the player that you just traded for, probably more valuable than you're willing to admit. And the player you just traded away, probably not as good as you think they are. And we do this a lot with prospects and players. And I'm worried that Kyle Dubas is doing it with his guys, quote unquote. I think a lot of NHL GMs do this and we criticize them for it. And I think right now it's fair to criticize Kyle Dubas for it. Okay, so it's weird because I can agree with a lot of those things, but then kind of disagree with like the overall conclusion there. I do agree that I do agree that Muzzin makes whole. You know, I said that probably more than anybody throughout the entire season. Do you remember that part where people thought Hole was their best defenseman? Well, okay, I think it was a bit of a meme, but yeah, no, I don't. That was never going to last. Yeah. Well, he led the league in game score for a week or two, didn't he? Yeah, and people just like lost their minds on him because he had a little heater of, of points and whatever, and, and he looked good early, and he was moving well, and I just kept saying on this podcast week after week that he's playing with Jake Muzzin. So I'm under no disillusions there. And I also like, – I find it funny because I don't really care. Like Brian Burke did the same thing. Brian Burke bought it, brought in his people, people that he'd worked with before, people that he was familiar with. But when Brian Burke did it, a lot of people had a problem with it. But when Kyle Dubas does it, a lot of people don't have a problem with it or they do and they just don't say anything because they probably were friends with him on Twitter.com prior to him being hired as general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Or you're in my boots and you've always kind of looked up to him. You've always seen this guy who represents this philosophy that you truly believe in and you want to believe in this guy who represents it. But then when he makes a decision that you disagree with, you find yourself in this cognitive dissonance zone. You don't really know what to do. You're going, wait a minute you were the guy who was supposed to uproot the system and, and challenge all the 200 hockey men conventional wisdom. And you're falling victim to a lot of the same biases and problems that we've been frustrated with for the last decade. He's doing the same things that they all do, right? He brought his own people in. He's brought in a number of players that he's familiar with. He drafted a guy from his team that he knew. And that's fine. Like, I don't care. Like I look at most of those players and they're fine. I'm, 
I mentioned it when they drafted Rasmus Sandin at the time. Like I remember writing just, you know, I'm not 100% sure if this guy's going to be good or not. Nobody is, but I find it interesting philosophically that he leaned towards the guy that he had a history with. So, Or when Mark Hunter drafts Nicholas Matinen in the sixth round, we get frustrated with it. But when Kyle Dubas keeps bringing in guys from the Sioux, does that not follow the same type of decision-making process? And should we not bring that into question? Of course it does. He used to be Kyle Clifford's agent. I mean, he knows these guys, and that's fine. Like, I I remember saying it at the time, and I haven't went to reread the article, and I don't think I'm going to, but I remember saying at the time, like, either we're going to look back and say, uh, this guy just picked his own guy, and that was a bust, or we're going to look back and say, like, he knew something because he's a good player. And I do think he's a good player, so... Yeah, I mean, I wanted to believe in Justin Hall when he was on the Marlies, and Babcock wasn't giving him a chance, you know? And I think this is a big part of the reason why Kyle Dubas is like, I believed in you all this time. I gave you a three-year contract when I probably didn't need to, but it's because I believe in you, and it's because I think that you're a top-four NHL defenseman who can move the puck. I'm not sure if he is. I think we both kind of agree that he's a 5D who's playing with a a top-pair defenseman. He's 100% a 5D. How many right-handed defensemen can move the puck as well as Justin Hall at $2 million? If I'm Kyle Dubas, I guess that's what I'm asking. And that's that's where my disagreement comes in, because I know everybody's like whining about it, and I get it, but this is where I go back to the fetish over 40-point wingers, who I think are a dime a dozen. But if you look at the NHL free agent market, who is a good defenseman that is right-handed that you're going to get at a reasonable price? And I specifically say right-handed, and this is I guess where people can philosophically disagree with me and that's fine. I think handedness matters. What about for lefties who have played on their right side for most of their careers? Does that matter? Yeah, because I think ultimately you're better if you are on your strong side. Like the game is inherently easier if you're on your strong side. Like I don't care who you are. It's easier to advance it up the wall out of the zone. It's easier to enter the zone. It's easier to do a lot of things that drive play. It's it's legitimately easier. And that's not, I think... (laughs) I think what happens is is somebody does it against the grain and then people say see you can do it without see Chicago won a cup with like a pretty crappy goalie TJ Brody does it with Giordano successfully does it with Riley successfully Nate Schmidt does it in Vegas successfully with Braden McNabb there's always examples you always find these examples like I'm not going to disagree Yalmerson's done it his whole life yeah and I love Jalmerson I would love to have him on the team I wanted him at the trade deadline you know I said that right on this podcast so I'm not saying it can't be done but I'm saying that all things being equal I want a right-handed guy playing the right-handed d-spot because it makes your life easier. I mean, Tampa just won back-to-back cups and they had three lefties and three righties and their three lefties were a hell of a lot better than their three righties. But they didn't make, they generally speaking, kept them on their strong sides and they, you can make things happen to your to your advantage. Like I made the comment on Twitter and it's such a hard thing to like kind of get those points across on Twitter. But the way Tampa would get the puck down deep in the offensive zone and like no look, rim it back to the point you can't do that if it's TJ Brody on his offside. And like, cause they were ripping it. Like they would get back down there and they're like, I'm going to fire this puck so ridiculously hard. And you have to take a little something off of it. If you know, it's a guy on his offside, cause he has to pick it up off the wall. And when you do that, it helps the other team get into position just a little bit faster. And in a game of inches, that stuff kind of adds up and Tampa kind of played that way, right? Their breakouts very much to me were designed and like flipped out because of the strong lefty-righty match that they had, and they made sure that they got righties in there all the time. I think you hit the nail on the head with their ozone play. One of the things Tampa does better than any NHL team, and I I saw a couple videos about this on Twitter, 
their ability to make quick plays off the wall in the offensive zone, they, they just own the puck because of it. Just a little half shake one way and then a quick pass around the boards. Like you said, lefty on the left point, righty on the right point. Maintain possession and then make the next play. They do such a good job of it. When it's a Braden Point or Nikita Kucherov who gets a little bit of extra space because of it, you're in trouble. Those guys can break down defenses. When it's a third line or a fourth line, okay, you keep the puck in the offensive zone and you know it's death by a thousand cuts. But you make a good point because handedness isn't something that doesn't matter, but Dubas is the guy who brought in Jake Muzzin instead of a right D, and Babcock got mad about it. So if we're going to bring up this handedness argument with Justin Hall here, isn't it kind of going the other way that we're saying, oh, handedness has to matter. It has to be the important thing. Well, I think too, and this should be noted for the for the Brody part, like their other two pairings were proper. They had a proper righty and a proper lefty. Yep. And there might be one pairing, I think, where you have two lefties, and it's usually two lefties because like, the last I looked at it, something like 35% of D-men in the NHL were right-handed, uh, which is why they're so rare um, and like actually considered rare because that's legit. But the the point is, is I would rather just have one pair like that. Like I wouldn't want to start playing with fire. I, I know Detroit used to do it back in the day where they had four lefties or sorry, six left defensemen, six left-handed shot defensemen. And people were like, see, look, Detroit's still sick and they have six lefties, but like they weren't winning cups like that. They had Brian Rafalski with Nick Lindstrom. Is this the point of the podcast where I can bring up Justin Hall's potential replacement? Yeah, that that would be my point because I'm looking at the UFA mark and I'm like, who are you replacing him with at a, a reasonable value with a right-handed shot? And you're also losing Zach Bogosian, most likely. All right, so this is the part of the podcast where I bring up Travis Dermott for the thousandth time in my lifetime, and I ask, why not? Because he's left-handed. So is TJ Brody. I know, I'm, <laughs> but I'm telling you, like, on my end of things, just... And this is where people have the argument. Some people will be like, I don't give a shit about handedness. Like, just just run the best defenseman and, like, figure it out. And to me, like, that's how you get these hodgepodge teams. And ultimately, I look and say, like, I want at least two righties in my decor. And I just, I don't see how they achieve that. See, Team Canada's done this. They they won't put a right-handed defenseman on the left side, and they'll have Jay Bomeister on their, their team when he shouldn't be there. Or they'll have... And they're winning gold medals? Well, yeah, they're not winning gold medals because of Jay Bomeister, okay? It's... I think it helps, though. I think all of these things help. Like, they're all... Inherently, people know who all the best players are, but it's the little decisions that round out your team. And one thing I would say to you is in a cap world, it's very hard... And, like, in a world where so much data is available to all of these teams, like, they're all reading the same shit that we are. I don't know what Ken Holland's reading. Yeah, I'm not going to... Well, you can talk about that one later. But generally speaking, like, it's really, really hard to get out advantages. And I look at things like just making your life a little bit easier by having proper handedness on defense. Like, it just makes your life just a little... Like, that's just a little bit of an advantage over all these other teams who are going, who gives a shit? Just get a bunch of players and... We'll rate them like this, and whichever way the the cookie crumbles. I want to push back the other way. What if every other team is trying to do what you're doing, and I'm just putting four better players on the ice in my top four, and then that helps me tilt the ice? I don't think that's what teams are doing, though. I think teams are doing like what more of what you're saying. They're just like, I'm gonna get my guys, and like we'll like figure it out from there. I think Tampa's actually more in the exception category with that. Because I saw a lot of people looking, they're like, why is Sergeyev on the third pairing? It's been like that for a while. He's been str- They haven't been able to get him in the top four, and I guess it's because 
they see the importance of handedness, their style of play in the offensive zone. They know they're rimming pucks harder on the wall. It's a factor. And a lot of people look at that and they're like, who gives a shit? And Tampa's probably laughing under their under their noses, like, you know, like covering their mouth. And they're like, we give a shit. Like, we think this matters. Like, we've conditioned our players. Like, you can't, it's harder when you're like, oh, like, we can't rim pucks back. Like, I have to make sure that I'm on with this D pairing, not this D pairing, because this guy's playing his offhand. Whereas their whole, like, their whole team is conditioned. Like, it literally does not matter what pairing you're on the ice with. Like, this is how we're going to play. Like, everything is the same. If that's the argument that Justin Hall fills that right D hole that you've had in this Leaf system forever now, TJ Brody miraculously filled the top pair right D hole that's been missing forever. Nikita Zaitsev had to fill it. Matt Hunwick had to fill it in the past. Did he fill the top? I Like, I've had umbrage with the some of the with the Brody conversation too because Are you serious? Okay, I'm going to push back here because I think that was the one that was very unequivocally solved. No, I think it was a good signing. I think he was good, so I'll clarify that. I just mean like like was Brody Riley even their like true top pairing? You're wondering if Muzzin Hall took more of the top yeah. competition. That's fair. And Jake Muzzin, you can give him top competition with a crappy partner and he'll find a way to come out at 50% at least, probably come out a bit on top in shots and chances. Like, he filled the top four role. I'm just not going to give you he filled the top pairing role because I didn't look at that and say that's a top pairing. Okay. Played a lot of minutes and didn't give up any chances despite playing alongside Morgan Riley. That's tough to do. He was good. He was he was absolutely good. There's no question. He's put in a lot of bad situations defensively where he had to cover a lot of space at once, a lot of two-on-ones, and he prevented those passes through the middle of the ice. I don't want to say every time, but most of the time and much more often than the average NHL defenseman. And that's why you pay him $5 million. Yeah, and he's a good player and that contract is fine right now. We'll see how it ages out. But like the the biggest thing for me is I want, I want two right-handed defensemen. Like the Leafs defense was as steady as it has been basically ever. I don't think it was insignificant that they added uh, a good right-handed player to play with a young defenseman and steady out the third pair. I don't think it's been insignificant to um, throw on another right-handed defenseman with Jake Muzzin. I think it would be a notable drop-off from game to game if Travis Dermott was there. I think it would make... What if Liljegren was there? I mean, Muzzin can play with anyone. He played with Zaitsev. But that, but whoever's playing with Muzzin is going up against top players, and I don't think Liljegren can do that. I. I think a lot of guys can do it alongside Jake Muzzin. I think you could put almost a replacement-level player beside Jake Muzzin. We were talking about this before the recording of the podcast, about how Cup teams, and we'll get to your list later because you did a lot of work into former Stanley Cup champions and what their lineups looked like, and some of their top lines or some of their top pairings had a guy there where you go, why the heck is he on the top line or why is he on the top pair? It's because if you're playing with a star player, they can lift you up. I know Drew Doughty had some questionable partners in the past. Eric Carlson had some questionable partners in the past. P.K. Subban in his prime played a lot with Alexei Emelin. So you can have an elite defensive player who can drive play alongside a guy who probably shouldn't be there. I would just say Muzzin's not in his prime anymore. He's 32. That's fair. And the injury concerns in his 30s. They're real. This is back-to-back years now for him. And you can say freak accidents, whatever. Injured players get in, like players that are injury prone get injured. It's like Nick Andropov as a young player. And how often do players who have been injured multiple times in their 30s perform better after those injuries? Yeah. Staying healthy is a skill. Yeah. 
So the risk assessment here with Muzzin, that was always the scariest part about the contract. And you do it because you're in your window and this guy helps you win now. But much like Tavares kind of, I don't want to say falling off a cliff, but the age curve is clearly, you know, he's, he's heading down the mountain right now. With Muzzin, you're concerned about that. And if Justin Hall's not there and Muzzin falters a little bit and isn't the guy who can control a pairing all by himself and you've lost Justin Hall and Travis Dermott can't play right D, then who the heck takes that spot? That's your argument. That's why you're saying you keep Justin Hall. Can I bring this back to Jared McCann for a second? Yes, but can I make a point before you do? Because then this will bleed into your McCann thing. I would also say that we inherently know that the Muzzin-Hole pairing is like they're solid. And you can say that it's on the bulk of Muzzin, and I would agree with that. But I think there's something to be said about if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And they're already going to have to fix the third pairing if, like, it sounds like Bogosian's leaving. And that's a much bigger blow than I think people realize because that was one of the best third pairs in hockey. Agreed. So now you're sitting there and it's like, well, now I have to find a suitable partner for Muzzin. And I don't think it's as simple as, like, just slap up anybody beside him. I, I, like, at some point, like, you sit there and say, like, I need to, like, like, I need to find him a partner. And then I need to find a third pairing partner. And that's hard. Like, now you're actually, like, remaking the defense. You're basically remaking it at that point. When you're getting two new, two out of six is new, and it might even borderline be three if you consider Sandine playing all season, I would consider that new. Like, you can say he's been in the organization, but he's hasn't played a full season in this league. So, for all intents and purposes, he's new. You're basically turning over half the defense for a unit that wasn't a problem, but now you're just kind of, like, crossing your fingers, being like, I'm going to play with this and hope to change it and you have to fix the forwards, and you have to find a backup goalie, possibly a 1A, and you're paying those four guys so much money? Like, how much shit do you want to do in one summer? And you have no draft picks? I hear all this. I hear it. And I know you're not stupid, and I know that these are good points. I just think highly of Jared McCann, is I think what this comes down to. I think he's a very good NHL player, and I don't think Justin Hall is anything more than a 5D who plays with Jake Muzzin. And I think that's where the disconnect is for me. Yeah, I just, I think that you can find similar-ish guys to McCann that are not, like, long-term solutions, but I think you could find, like, a stopgap guy who's, you know, can provide you somewhat in the range of what McCann will ultimately end up providing for that money. That's the same, like, I was having this argument with people on Twitter. They're like, well, where are you going to replace Kerfoot? I'm like, go sign Nick Benino. Like, Jesus, like, you can go find a bunch of guys who are, like, at the bottom line going to give you what Kerfoot does over a given season. It's not a long-term solution, but who cares? You don't need a long-term solution. You need, like, stop gaps until, like, the Rodin Amaroffs and the Nick Robertsons are ready. You hope Nick Robertson's ready this season. That's the goal, but we'll see what happens. If Nick Robertson can play in the top six, that solves a lot of problems, but the, the likelihood of that, we've talked about it. I- so here's my here's my question to you, I guess. The thing that I've kind of grappled with, because like I said, like my annoying thing will be if Kerfoot's on this team come the weekend. Like if the draft ends and this guy's still on the team, I'm going to be annoyed. Like I just, I don't want to watch him play hockey in a Leafs jersey anymore. Can you imagine if he's on the opening night roster? Yeah, like I don't, like, don't want to see it. Like first game back in Toronto and like who knows how long. And uh, like he's standing on the blue line and they're announcing his name. And then I got to watch Matthews and Marner play 25 minutes that night. Like, just like, I'm not going to enjoy it. Like, like, go get the beer in the fridge and just sit back. But my question to you would be, because this is the thing I've hesitated with. Would they have been able to make that trade for McCann after the expansion draft? And I think that was 
the crux of it? I think the answer to that is probably no, right? Because Pittsburgh made that trade panicking, looking at the protection list that they wanted, realized McCann wasn't on it, and said, let's get an asset for this guy. And that's my thing. I think... Personally, I think McCann should be on that list, and that's another conversation. Yeah. But l- let's say you're Kyle Dubas, and you know Seattle is taking Kerfoot, and they're not going to take McCann if you trade for him. I guess it makes sense, but giving them that option just scares me. I-, I-, I think that McCann is the better hockey player than Alex Kerfoot. And if you give, if-, if let's say the Leafs lose McCann to Seattle instead of Kerfoot, then everyone gets mad. If they lose Kerfoot instead of McCann, no one's going to get mad. And I think it should be the same level of frustration because I think you should be frustrated with the process, not the result. I've been told my entire hockey life in this nerd community that we don't get hung up on the result because results can can be wonky, shit happens. Focus on a solid process, and if you follow that from beginning to end, at the end of the day, that's what's going to get you there. I'm not a fan of this process. I'm not a fan of giving up assets for a guy. The seventh-round pick I could care less about. Philip Hallander is a very good prospect. Equivalent of what? A second-round pick, let's say? Third-round pick? I don't know if I would say very good. He went in the second round. He's Yeah. He's a good prospect. B-level prospect, let's call him. Okay? And what people will say is that, well, you know, you gave up Hollander in a seventh instead of losing a third-line center. I I hate that kind of twisting logic to prove your own point when it's not really what's happening because the trade happened and now you have Jared McCann so this is the way you need to look at it now so if you genuinely believe that Justin Hall is worth more than Jared McCann I I guess I have to accept that but I just think the value is there I don't think he's a better player straight up I'm saying like I think in a cap world I think it would be easier to replace Jared McCann for three million dollars than it would be to replace Justin Hall for two million dollars I just think that when we were talking about guys that we were hoping the Leafs could add on the RFA market or the trade market, McCann's name didn't come up, but it probably should have. So that's on us for not going through every single name on the on the trade bait list. I just don't like him as much as the analytics people do, to be honest. <laughs> okay. And you know what? NHL GMs agree with you. So what is it about Jared McCann that the charts love that you don't love? I think he's I think he's like a third line center, but I think he can play in the top six, which I like. And I think that's like I think that's what you should be getting for three million dollars. I think there's some flaws to his game. Anything specifically come to mind? Like he's soft. Like he is a softer player, right? Like puck battles, back checking defensively. These are going to be your concerns. Like yeah, that that would definitely play a role. I mean, it's not like he has a history of playoff success, which I thought was hilarious. I didn't really want to get into it when the Leafs traded for him, but I was like, oh, another guy who has a history of not producing in the playoffs, so that's kind of funny that the Leafs targeted him. Yeah, Dom made fun of my Thomas Tatar pick for that reason, exactly. Yeah, so you know, let's just get all the guys who can't produce in the playoffs and then pray to God that they all figure it out all at once. Yeah, counter-argument is, oh, let's just overpay for small sample success. Yes, love to do that. Oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't... At the same time, I wouldn't necessarily like pay up huge for guy like because what did we just say about Kerfoot we said how can you watch these playoffs and think that this is the player yeah Barkley Goodrow that contract but McCann also hasn't been super productive like he was on a heater this season he shot like 15 point whatever percent yeah he's not going to do that again it's unlikely that repeats is he just a 35 point player at the end of the day like who cares like those guys are nothing I would actually rather have a defenseman who you can reasonably and trust to play like a good 18 19 20 minutes a night that can skate and move the puck and is right-handed for two million dollars well yeah well i think those those guys 
don't get traded. Yeah, like that's actually hard to find. I just think McCann is a little bit easier to find. So I'm just like, I'm kind of whatever on it. But you're right in that we should have mentioned him. Like I'm I'm annoyed at us for not because obviously the Sioux connection that we all knew. So like we should have, we should have foreseen it. I thought Pittsburgh wanted to keep him. I just assumed he was a good player that teams would look at and say, yeah, we hold on to this guy. He's He did really well for us last year. A guy who's like, what, 6'2", that's a little bit softer, that's coming off a career year. You think Brian Burke's going to like that? Hey, your word, not mine. I am not going to call Brian McCann. The, Jared the McCann? Crim- criminal word. Yeah, <laughs> Brian yeah. McCann. Oh, my God. Yeah. I shouldn't say soft. I should say he's not physical. Brian McCann, the catcher? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. I was wondering where did that where hard did hard shifts in the in the outfield for Brian McCann. Too much Moneyball for me lately, Ian. Come on. I guess the crooks. But the thing I would ask you is if, and maybe he does know this, and we're just kind of like whatever. If he knows that Seattle's picking up Kerfoot, regardless, like is that a bad process then? Maybe not. Maybe if you have that relationship, and Ron Francis has told you directly. But I just I hate playing this game where we tell ourselves what we want to be the case instead of looking at the information that's available to us. I can only act on what I know and I don't know that. So, and to your point to that process, I would say like, people are like, well, like you keep Kerfoot and you lose Hollander in a seventh. And to that, I would say, I would actually rather have Hollander the seventh and the three and a half million dollars in cap space. But people will say, well, you could probably trade Kerfoot for more than that. I'm not as convinced as others. When guys like Vince Dunn, who are like young and good and actually he has a cup, can't even net St. Louis a third round pick. Like I don't I don't know if Kerfoot has the value that people think that he does. I could care less about, you know, trading for like a fourth round pick or whatever. I'd rather just get rid of him and keep Hollander who seems reasonably close to potentially making the league. I think what this really comes down to is how we see McCann as a hockey player. And I think you see him the way that a lot of front offices do. And I think you see him as someone who's, you know, a third line guy. But he's an upgrade on Kerfoot, which I like. Yeah, I think he's closer to a second-line player. I guess that's where the, that's the disagreement mostly comes in. And I've had disagreements with people before on prospects, on players, on goalies. It's disagreements. I like getting into disagreements with people who I respect, and we can go back and forth like this. So I think it's been a pretty good discussion. If he played with John Tavares and or Austin Matthews all season, like I could see him getting 50 points. He's a better finisher than Kerfoot. Like Kerfoot can't shoot. Yeah, no. And I think that shot threat matters because especially if you're Matthews and you're playing with Marner, who already isn't a shot threat, when he has to play with two guys who can't shoot the puck, he has to do so much by himself. And he can do it because he's Austin Matthews. But you see what happens when Nikita Kucherov has that extra bit of space. It opens up all these options yeah. for him. We talked earlier this season about the Brooklyn Nets who – you can say fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your, your rooting interests, but they ne- were never healthy in the playoffs. When those guys were healthy, the amount of space that they each had individually because you had to respect the other one, it gave them uh, so much room to go do what they can do best. If Austin Matthews has a bit more room out there to do Austin Matthews things because the defense has to worry about another shooter, I think that matters. I think it also matters on the power play, and that's why when you're building your PP1, you should take that into account, but... That's a conversation for another week, I think. Do you want to put a bow on this conversation real quick so that we can move on to your topic about how to build a contender in terms of lineup construction? Because I think it's a really good point. Yeah, and I think that's a good point about McCann being a shooter. And Matthews really hasn't played with like too many lefties. And, you know, I would say McCann is a similar 
ish caliber of player as Andreas Janssen. And I did not mind that combo at all when Andreas Janssen was with Matthews. I actually kind of liked it. Janssen, Matthews, Nylander, when they were running for a while there, good. was one of the best lines in hockey statistically. So I could easily see McCann slotting beside Matthews and even a Nylander instead of Marner and being a, like a really, really good line. So I like all those things. Like, I don't want to sound like I'm like completely down on McCann and like I don't think he's a good hockey player I do think he's a good hockey player I think they've needed a few guys like him that can play center and can play wing and he moved up when Malkin was hurt and he acquitted himself well so those are all great things to have I'll be a little bit annoyed if they lose him I'll be a lot more annoyed if they keep Kerfoot (laughs) and I just I just I've had trouble like looking at the group on defense and saying how are they getting better and how are they filling out the rest of the group by losing Justin Hole? And that is what I've had struggles with. But like in my ideal world, they bring in a guy like Adam Larson, but they just don't have the cap space because I think Larson is a really good right-handed defenseman, at least defensively. And if you play him with a Morgan Riley, and then you play Brody with Muzzin, and then you have Sandine Dermott playing with Hole on the third pairing, I think that's about as good as a Leafs defense as we're possibly going to see without them having like a number one stud. But that's like this dream world I live in. Yeah, I was hearing those thir- those pairs out loud. I'm going, oh my god, Hall on the third pair with a Dermot or Sandine. That sounds awesome. But unreal, a lot of versatility. You need that extra top four defenseman, and you need to pay that extra top four defenseman, and you don't have the cap space to. So that's the tricky part of all this. And you need guys on Justin Hall contracts, which will lead to the next topic when you're paying four guys so much money. Do the Leafs' top players make a lot of money? Never heard that before. <laughs> It just, it just, yeah, it just impacts everything. The trickle down effect is just insanity. All right. So Anthony, you wrote an article where you broke down cup winners over the last how many years? Uh, 12, the last 12 cup winners. 12 years. Was there a reason you picked the number 12? Uh, I think we're all just like designed to work in like tens and like Blackhawks won in 2009, 2010. So I was like, I'm just going to stop it at the 2010 mark and we'll move on with our lives from there. I also feel like looking back, we, we were talking about the, the depth lines there and those those first three teams, so that, that first Blackhawks team and then the Bruins and then the Kings all dressed like traditional fourth lines that barely played. But since then, we really haven't seen that. So it kind of goes to show you the, the way that the league is trending. Okay, so you put a lot of effort into these lists and you, you broke them down by time on ice. And I'm a, I love it when people put a lot of effort into a hockey article because I don't think it happens enough. And you actually did, so I want to get something out of this. Uh, when you're trying to build a contender, I think one of your biggest frustrations with the Leafs is that Matthews and Marner played too many minutes this year. They just top-loaded the ice time. And as much as it sounds cool to say, hey, give your best players all the minutes, you know, Durant plays 48 minutes in a, an important basketball game. When the chips are down, the Raptors play Kawhi Leonard a ton of minutes, and that's what you need to do. If you look at cup winners over the last 12 years like you did, what did you find out? Ultimately, that teams don't load up their top players the way that the Leafs have, which has been one of my frustrations for basically since Keefe has taken over. And I think that there was an overcorrection as to what was happening. I think people were really frustrated by the perceived lack of ice time that the top players were getting. Uh, Sometimes justifiable, sometimes not, I would say under Mike Babcock and then Mike Babcock got fired and they essentially 
gave the team to the top guys and just said we're going to feed you as much ice time as humanly possible and I just don't think that's a recipe for success at the end of the day but at the same time I was kind of having this conversation in the comments of of the article I don't want to absolve Matthews and Marner of blame because they both need to play better like like ultimately there's no one in the world that watched game seven and said like these guys are playing their best or game six yeah, right. Even game six too. Like it wasn't them that were like leading the charge for that comeback before ultimately losing in overtime. And you know that shouldn't be forgotten. Like they just they straight up need to be better. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna demand that money and all of that responsibility, then you need to own it and you need to play to that level that you know that gets that. And I think sometimes people read like that kind of article. And they have a really difficult time detaching the money just from the reality. It's like you have to put aside the money at some point. Like you, like a lot of people, you kind of realize, and this was kind of the same thing when Friedman was on the podcast and he said, you know, like I was surprised at the like the losing, how much it brought back the Marner contract and, and that one in particular. And I just think a lot of people take it personally in the market, like, here was this hometown guy that was loved and he held out and he shopped around for an offer sheet and he held the Leafs feet to the fire and squeezed out every last cent that he could. And that burns for people like that. People are, are, I think people are having a really difficult time being objective. Why doesn't Matthews get the same criticism for a similar contract tactic in that he wanted a better contract than Connor McDavid. If, if the term was higher, he wanted $14 million, $15 million. He wanted an absurd contract. And then they got him in at a very low term and a high cap hit, which wasn't fair when you compared it to the Connor McDavid contract, but he still got it. Yeah. I Well, I think Matthews is inherently a better player than Marner. It's not close. And I know that Marner's dad would say, oh, you know, I choose my comparables and Austin Matthews is my comparable. And that was the thing. They basically went, not to rehash the whole contract thing, but they basically went to Dubas and said, like, we're only taking a million less. Right? Like, that was basically their stance. Like, I don't give a shit what the other comparables are. Like, this is how much Matthews is making and this is how much less we feel we should be making than Matthews and nothing else matters in our lives or world. And it was as much about uh, ego and self-perceived respect than it was to anything to do with, you know, hockey or money. And I think a lot of people have problems with that. But at the same time, the money that they're giving or the ice time that they're giving Marner, they're basically asking him to be the best player in the world. And I think that's unfair. I think Marner is a really good player. You're referring to his ice time, right? Yes. Like he like it's unheard of in this in this modern era of hockey for a team to win the cup with the ice time that um, and he played like a, almost a full minute more than Matthews a night in part because of his penalty killing duties. But they're basically looking at this guy and saying, play line one, play PK one and play PP one. And like, you have to lead all three lines and that's unfair. Like he's, he's a really good player. I think he's probably around what a top 20 player in the league. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like he, that is very, very good. He is elite but he's not the best player in the league and that's okay. Like put aside the money for a second, just like how good he is, is more than good enough. But the way that they use him and what they ask of him is just completely unreasonable. Like, I don't think that's fair. I think there's a chance that uh, his camp pushes for that. I Like, I think there are some politics involved in that ice time. I think it would be naive of anyone to suggest otherwise. 
but at some point, like something has to give there. I think it's just outrageous what they're doing. For fun, let's compare him to some of the highest time on ice players among the last 12 Stanley Cup champions like you have. Who are the guys, if you just list them off real quick? So Marner, Marner played 24-43 a night in the seven-game playoff series. Some of those games went to overtime, so just a bit of context here, but there's overtime for all these teams. And, and those overtimes ended quick. Like, there wasn't, like, a, a long one in That's it, fair. right? Like, Galchenyuk said, here's a free goal, like, two minutes in. I, I only, it was under a minute. I think it was 55 seconds. Yeah, right? So Kucherov averaged 21.40 when Tampa won their first cup. All right. Uh, so, like, a full three minutes less, which is a lot. Uh, Ovechkin averaged 20.44 when Washington won their cup. Okay. Also, side note, hilarious when he was barely playing when uh, when Hunter was uh, was coaching. And then he ends up leading his team in ice time, like, what, six years later and wins the cup. Uh, Taves averaged 20.54 20, in 2015. And he played on a line with Marion Hossa and Brandon Saad. And I'll say one difference there is because of the backdiving of contracts. Like, you had Taves and Hossa on one line. You had Patrick Kane on another line. And then you had Patrick Sharp with Toivu Tervainen and Vermette on a third line, which is just not an option for the Leafs because they can't backdive contracts the way that that Chicago team took advantage of. It's too bad they had to get rid of Tevu Teravain. And can you imagine if they held on to him, how good he would have been there? He's the first line winger in the NHL. What about our Terry Panarin? Yeah, that guy's pretty good. Even though you're botching some of these names. These guys are good. Yeah, I apologize if I... (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying. I'm really trying. And then you get Anzi Kopitar in 2014, averaged 21-13. And for my money, that playoff performance by Kopitar was the best single individual playoff performance that we've seen from a player over the past like 10 plus years malkin's had malkin had a really good one kucherov's had a couple great ones now i know i know everyone focuses on the points but in that playoffs he went head to head against taves prime taves who was in like the middle of a chicago dynasty he won that matchup and then he went up against like pretty much prime ryan gets and Corey perry i got the order mixed up but these are the guys he went up against and Getzlaff had like an 87 point season I think Corey Perry had 43 goals that year so like these guys were like in their prime won that matchup and he went up against prime Logan Couture who like a few years later ripped off a 30 point playoff okay on the way to San Jose going to the cup but that but that San Jose team was sick that San Jose team was incredible that was also the year that they came back down three nothing against San Jose I'm not saying it's a brutal playoff performance I'm just not sure if it's the best one of the last 15 years or so who's had that tough of a that's like a murderer's row like that san jose team was like as elite as they've ever been like that that san jose team was incredible was that the one that swept the first two rounds or they they played so few games en route to a stanley cup final no that was the first la cup team this one was like the second one where san jose went up three nothing against them and uh Doughty said after the game that he thinks that they need to play him like 30 minutes a night and then they like basically started doing that and they came back but I just I think that that to go point to game and to play those matchups like night in night out and like win and to produce at that like a point per game level I think is just unbelievable okay let's go lightning round on these last few just give me the time on ice and the player name Kopitar in that first one went played the this was the highest number that I saw was twenty two oh three. That was the okay. highest number of anybody. So 
he's asking Marner to play like a full almost three minutes more than any cup winning forward over the past 12 years. That's ridiculous. Let me go devil's advocate. Kopitar's line one, PP one, PK one. Marner should be getting first line minutes at five and five. He's the team's best penalty killer. And you probably want him on the power play with his passing ability. So yeah, but you can find ways to scale it back. Like you, like you just made the point, right? Like Kopitar did it too. Taves did it as well. Braden point at times has done it, but like, they're not playing 25, close to 25 minutes a night. Like, they find other ways to do it, and inherently people will say it's a depth problem, which is true. And that's part of what I'm trying to frame here, is, like, they're missing probably two really good forwards. Like, they're not just one forward away. I think they're two really good forwards away. Okay, finish your list on the player's time on ice, the top player, and then we'll quickly talk about some third lines, because I think this is what the Leafs are really missing, is they didn't have a third line this year. I think they recognized it. They tried Zach Hyman down there, and that was their best third line by far. But then in the playoffs, they went back to Zach Hyman in the top six, and the third line was a big question mark. Uh, the John Tavares injury obviously impacts things a bit, but of course, let's finish up this time on ice list, and then I want to talk about third lines. Yeah, the only other guy I think of note is uh, Taves in 2013, averaged 21-33. But otherwise, it's guys who are 20 minutes and below? Yeah, 20 minutes and below. There were a few teams that had four guys average 20 minutes, uh, which surprised me, but like, like that Washington team did, but none of them averaged over 21. Okay, so it's 2021-ish. Seems to be the, the, the sweet spot for a star player in the playoffs. Yeah, but then you get like, like Pitt won one of their cup. They won one cup with nobody averaging 20 minutes, including Sid. Now, is that a good idea? Shouldn't those guys maybe get a bit more minutes? Well, the thing was, is they had guys like gensel and rust and sheary all emerged from their minor system and they were all sick yeah, the hbk line kessel on your third line's a nice luxury so here's the leafs the leafs right now as things stand it's either kerfoot or mccann on the third line and what engvall mckayev wayne simmons maybe because he's he doesn't play well with jason spezza so are you gonna have simmons on your third line and spets on your fourth line that's why that signing's always been confusing to me i'm like where is he playing Maybe he does play with Spezza and they just figure it out, but I think that's a waste of Spezza's passing ability to a guy who can't. It's 100% can't, a waste. Who, I guess he, Simmons can go to the net, but uh, we'll, we'll save this conversation for later. The third line, I think, is a good point because if you look at historically over the last decade plus, which you've done, teams who've won Stanley Cups have had a great third line. Me and you went through them before the show started. I think St. Louis is the one exception that didn't really have a great line. But can you list some of the great third lines over the last decade who have won Stanley Cups? I just brought up the Phil Kessel, Nick Bonino, Carl Hagelin line. Yeah, and I mentioned, obviously, the Tampa back-to-back third lines with Gord and Coleman and Goudreau. Um, Chicago, of course, like I mentioned the Vermette one already, but they had a bunch. You made Vermette sound like he was good. It was Patrick Sharp and uh, Taravainen who were the good players. Yeah, 100%. Um, Vermette just really had the one big goal. Otherwise, he didn't do much in that playoffs. Yeah, not worth the first round pick they paid. They won a cup, so I'm sure they don't care at the end of the day. But the uh, Chicago also ran Ladd, Boland, and Versteeg in their first cup, which I thought was pretty good. I actually like Boston's uh, third line when, when they won with Kelly Ryder and Rich Peverly. I liked Rich Peverly. I thought he was a good player. Eh, eh, that, that one doesn't sound like a murderer's row. It's not a murderer's row, but it is a good, it, like they were a good third line with some scoring. Uh, and then you just, yeah, and then you kind of get into the groups like 
Uh, LA, I mentioned Dwight King, not that good, but they had Jarrett Stoll as the center and Justin Williams as the third line right winger. Justin Williams was a first line player during those cups and he was playing on a third line. So that, that reminded me of uh, when Zach Hyman was playing on Toronto's third line. You need a third line. With, you need a third line that can go up against other teams' top sixes and not look like it's going to get killed. Tampa Bay this year had three lines. That's why they won a cup. At minimum, you need one guy on that line where you're like, he's way out of place on the third line. You know, like Yanni Gord. That's a top six player. Yeah, Yanni Gord's a top six player. Blake Coleman's a top six player. Ideally, you have two, but like you need at least one. And when your third line is 32-year-old Wayne Simmons, Pierre Engvall, and Ilya Mikheyev, it's zero. Mikheyev with a shooting percentage, I think, is arguably a second-line player. But when he's scoring on 0% of those shots, it's it's tough to justify. I think the I think the Mikheyev thing hurt them against Columbus because he came back, if you recall, and everyone was like, oh, this Mikheyev-Tavares-Marner line looks sick. And it sounded good in theory because Mikheyev was good before the injury. Uh, and then he just really struggled, and they like eventually just demoted him and said, like, yeah, we need to cut bait but yeah i hear what you're saying just it hasn't come to fruition so you can't really bank on it at this point you would want him to be the third best player on your third line with the hope for more yeah you'd want him to be the checker with two guys who can do some scoring what if you want mikhaev spezza insert guy who can put the puck in the net potentially but i they they're gonna deploy spezza as a fourth liner so that's the fourth line so let's be real here let's yeah I, and i don't like spezza when he's forced to play with an angval or when he's forced to play with someone who clearly can't keep up with the level of skill that he wants to play with yeah and i I think it's just important for people to kind of frame that context because they look and they go like now what and and yeah you can say you can give the coaching staff a pass and say well they just they actively didn't have the depth so they just decided to load up i think they need to be a little bit more creative and and how they deploy players and ultimately at the end of the day i find it just I find it genuinely upsetting. Like it, like it pisses me off that they pay these guys huge money and then they like attach them to the hip and they go like, okay, well you guys just go out and have all the fun together and like F the rest of the team basically. Like, it's just all about you guys. Like, let's just make sure you guys are happy. Let's, let's just pamper you guys along the way. Like who's making sacrifices? Who's made a sacrifice of those four guys? Who have they said, like, who have they said, we need three lines. Like, one of you has to, like, go eat shit on the third line. And when we do that, inherently, your line mates on the first line are also going to be a little bit worse. But, like, we're actually trying to win a cup here as a team. Nylander takes the ice time cuts. He's he's the one who always gets the short end of the stick in that regard, whether it's power play time or 5-on-5 five five ice time. He needs more minutes in general. And I think because he's the easiest target. I think to get Nylander more minutes, you need to play him with Matthews more next year. And I think you need to play Marner with Tavares more next year because Tavares is clearly slipping. And I think if you can get him some easy tap-ins from Mitch Marner, I think that can only help. I also think they have to sit there and go, I think one of these guys has to carry their own line. Oh, I think two of these guys have to carry their own line. I don't really care how it shakes out. Yeah, and I think if you have a Matthews line and a Marner line, much like a Taves line and a Kane line, makes you harder to play against in the playoffs. And just selfishly for me looking at Nylander going, this guy's one of your best players. He needs to play more than 16 minutes a night. If he's playing with Austin Matthews, I bet you he gets closer to 20 than 16. I bet you he all of a sudden and will produce at the same rate with more minutes, which means more pucks going into the net. It just bothers me to sit there and it's like, okay, well, we paid you guys and we're going to make your life like as easy as possible. Like, I just ultimately don't think it's the recipe to actually win 
come playoff time. Like, you need to have three lines. And if they can't afford three lines because of the cap situation that, by the way, these guys put them in, then they need to be like, all right, well, you know, this isn't just like a fun little party of us having fun and holding hands and singing around the campfire. Like, we're going to have to, like, split you guys up and move things around a little bit. And you're actually, like, we've said this before, like, I've said this before, like, the next step is, like, those guys have to start making other players better. Like, they're just not doing it. Like, they're not making other players better right now. Like, they're just playing off of each other and, like, they're yipping it up them two. But they're not they're not making other players better. I, I want to get out of here, but I want to end with a little bit of a joke because I feel like we just got pretty negative there. Did you see the Twitter timeline the other night? The hockey Twitter timeline? Uh... No, I have a life. What happened? So, yeah, I'm glad. Good good for you, man. Wow, i got to get one of those. So, two mutual friends of mine that I've known over the last few years, uh, Dom Lushishin and Mikey Stevens, uh, started tweeting about the single life. And then all of a sudden, everyone on hockey Twitter was getting thirsty at the same time. And everyone was revealing whether or not they were single. And then there was a lot of single life happening on the Twitter timeline. I've been in a relationship for the last five years, so I've been staying out of all this drama. But as someone who just uses this app to try to keep on the up and up in the latest hockey, whether it's live events or whether it's draft stuff, research that's come to light, I like being up to date on stuff that's happening in the world. Seeing all these single people on my timeline turn hockey Twitter into hockey Tinder, I was not ready for it, man. It was a night. The DMs were probably bumping, I'm sure everyone sliding into the dms everybody being like i'm single and then sup and it was i I wasn't ready for it dude i (laughs) i'm not expecting this when i flip open my phone and to i'm hoping to see more frustration about justin hall and uh and mccann but i'm just seeing these guys and girls in their 20s talking about how single they are and you know what i'm glad i'm not single during this pandemic twitter era because holy crap man i'm not sure if i could handle it bloggers are people too lonely people but they're people (laughs) and stuff's opening up so you know what love is in the air and dom said that he was doing the world a service so i I don't know if you were i'm kind of mad at you for messing up my timeline last night buddy but if this is a positive thing maybe it's a positive thing go out there and find love everyone hope you find it all right we're ending on that (laughs) that's how we're ending it this week no no smart hockey takes just love we'll be back next week to tell you why we were so wrong about all of this and Alex Kerfoot being a proud member of the Seattle Kraken thanks to that fish thing that, that, that leaked did you see that with Kevin Weeks and the guy catching the big fish and then saying Alex Kerfoot Seattle Kraken the internet is a bizarre place and I love it we'll talk next week everybody take care